You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the official podcast of the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Today, we've got another installment in our series celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage by highlighting women's achievements in national security. And we're excited to welcome Jamila Biggio, who is a senior fellow for women at the Women and Foreign Policy. I like the idea of those two being joined at the Council on Foreign Relations. Our past casts have focused on women's contributions to national security by talking to successful women in this space about their careers, but we've got a two for today. Jamila is an accomplished woman in national security and international relations, but she's also an expert in the role that gender itself plays in national security and the kinds of national policies that countries need to develop to account for that. I'm personally pretty thrilled to have you on the cast because I only learned about this type of work from being in a fairly niche office at DOD, but it's super important and I'm really excited to bring it to a larger audience. Welcome Jamila. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to join you all today. We're excited to have you as well. And let's just jump right in and start with the work that you've done on women, peace, and security. Uh, You worked on this topic while you were serving first at the Department of State, and then when you were at Defense, and then on the National Security Council staff as the Director for Human Rights and Gender. And now you lead research on this issue from your perch at the Council on Foreign Relations. So what is the Women, Peace, and Security portfolio all about? So it's first and foremost about recognizing that to reduce conflict and to advance stability, we need to draw on an effective but often overlooked strategy, which is the inclusion of women. They make immense contributions to conflict prevention and resolution. They can improve outcomes before, during, and after conflict, but they are often excluded from decision-making. So that's one core of uh, women, peace, and security's commitment is to support women's leadership. The second component is to recognize that to understand conflict, to understand its dynamics, it affects on, its effects on people, how it can best be resolved, we need to understand its impacts on women and girls on half the population. This is actually a a banner year. We are marking the 20th anniversary of the first ever UN Security Council resolution that recognized that women's experiences in war and their contributions to peace are indeed matters of national security. And that's what created the Women, Peace and Security agenda. So what programs did the US government put in place because of you and your colleagues' work? The first step was a strategy. The Obama administration released the first ever US strategy on promoting women's meaningful participation in conflict prevention and resolution. I was part of the teams at the Departments of State and of Defense who drafted that, and I then went over to the White House to oversee its implementation. And from these commitments, we saw the agencies launching new policies and programs. State and USAID, for example, started coordinating their resources to support women's leadership in peace processes from Afghanistan to South Sudan. We saw at the UN Security Council, the US used its leadership to help create the position of the first UN UN Secretary General Special Representative on Sexual Violence and Conflict, which helped to shine a spotlight on this issue. Uh, We also saw the agencies launch Safe from the Start, 
which is a program that's working to make sure that at the outset of an emergency, the humanitarian system ensures that women are protected from violence. Building on this experience, after years of civil society advocacy and really strong bipartisan support, we also saw the US Congress in 2017 pass the Women, Peace and Security Act, which is the most comprehensive law in the world on this issue. The law required a new whole of government strategy on how the US would promote this goal. It required laying out training requirements for all appropriate personnel, and it required US officials to consult local women to improve US policies and programs. So the Trump administration issued this strategy last year, and just last month, state, USAID, DOD, and DHS all issued implementation plans. They made new promises. State identified 14 focus countries for its women, peace, and security efforts from Burma to Iraq to South Sudan. USAID committed to increase women's roles in countering violent extremism from Indonesia to northern Nigeria. And DOD promised to be a model for increasing gender diversity and inclusion. In fact, this morning, the House Oversight Subcommittee on National Security will hold its first ever hearing on how well things are going. Well, and hopefully we can hyperlink that for, uh, for our listeners. We'll give you the C-SPAN link if that's available. Um, but we, you know, there have been a number of studies on um, sort of the role of women on the role of women on this particular topic. And what do you think the research has shown about women's role? So we've seen a plethora of research that support that women's participation is, in fact, a proven strategy to improve global security. We've seen that when women and civil society groups participate in a peace process, the resulting agreement is 64% less likely to fail and 35% more likely to last at least 15 years. We've, there's research that's shown that higher levels of gender equality are actually associated with a lower propensity for conflict. We've seen that greater numbers of women in parliament actually decreases the likelihood of human rights abuses and conflict relapse. Research has also found that what happens in the home and people's attitudes are also uh, signs of uh, potential likelihood for violence. So for example, there's research that inequality in family law and this means policies that disadvantage women regarding age and consent of marriage, the criminalization of marital rape, inheritance law and practices, that when there are inequalities in these kinds of family laws, that it's a significant predictor of state instability and fragility. And this is based on an analysis of 171 countries. We've also seen research that support for gender equality is associated with a likelihood of violence. So individuals, both men and women, who do not support gender equality are more likely to express hostility towards other countries and to minorities within their own country. This was based on a study of five countries around the Pacific, including the United States, China, Indonesia, Japan, and South Korea. And there are some other studies, which I think might be of interest, that discuss the development and economic benefits of gender equality. If you could go into a little more detail about those. Yes. So there is indeed research that establishes a link between gender equality, 
global prosperity and development outcomes, just to give you a highlight of a few of these findings. So some research has found that closing the gender gap in workforce participation could add $14 trillion to the global gross domestic product to GDP. We also know that equalizing access to agricultural resources for women could reduce global hunger for up to 150 million people. Education is another key area where we've seen positive results when we increase girls' years of schooling. So just one extra year of schooling beyond the average can increase women's wages by 10 to 20%. And we know that when you increase the share of women completing secondary education by even 1%, that it increases economic growth by 0.3%. So we see direct correlation between increasing women's education and economic growth. We also see impacts on child mortality, that for every one additional year of education for women, that child mortality decreases by almost 10%. So these are just a few of the findings, but there's a whole assortment more that demonstrate that in fact, improving gender equality can help lift households, communities, and nations out of poverty. Wow, that's a, that, those are interesting um, studies and interesting findings. And I think um, when we were sort of speaking in a prep for this call, um, I mentioned to you that I remembered that there had been a study from 50 years ago that said postponed childbearing and female literacy were key indicators of wealth in countries and maybe the two most important indicators. So this is great to hear. But we've turned inward as a country, so I'd like to play devil's advocate. Um, right now, America is in uh, an interesting time. And we're very concerned about domestic politics. So why does this matter to Americans? And why should taxpayers spend money on this at a time like this? Yeah, so we've certainly heard the argument that paying attention or advancing um, opportunities for women are unnecessary distractions, that they are important but not worth the investment of time and resources. Uh, but this, in fact, overlooks the research and experience um, and what we're seeing in America and around the world right now, that women's leadership leads to better outcomes and that it is, in fact, a cost-effective investment to improve the likelihood of uh, successful security efforts, um, to ensure that uh, peace agreements are sustainable, to um, promote economic growth, to improve communities' health, that across all of these measures that investing in opportunities for women and girls saves lives and resources down the road for entire societies. Um, and we see that, in fact, that countries around the world that overlook the contributions of 50% of their populations, that that's a strategic handicap. So you've convinced me, Jamila. So what are some of the priorities moving forward? Um, what gaps remain? How can we improve the programs that you described? So when we look back at the issue of women, peace, and security, there are a couple of priorities that we are focusing on now. So first is making sure that the US government's commitments on promoting women's participation in advancing security 
are actually integrated in our broader national security efforts. And this is a gap we see right now. There are too many missed opportunities where advancing women's contributions would have improved U.S. diplomatic development and security efforts. One of the most prominent examples of this right now is Afghanistan. So despite years of bipartisan promises to protect Afghan women's rights and set Afghanistan on a path to sustainable peace and stability, we saw the Trump administration abandon these commitments in order to procure a deal with the Taliban. And they left any guarantees for Afghan women and girls to an intra-Afghan process. And this is just one example where our commitments on the importance of women's participation in peace and security are not translating into practice on the ground to, uh, and which threatens the outcomes. We know that Afghanistan is more likely to achieve sustainable peace and stability when women are active participants and when Afghan women's rights are protected. So this should be part of our core strategy in Afghanistan. A second gap is looking at accountability. Um, so for, uh, you know, for, for too many years, there has been um, an empty rhetoric. Um, there have been political commitments made by governments around the world that have been committed to women, peace, and security um, that have not translated into practice. And so one key measure here is for governments, the US government included, to actually set clear goals, benchmarks, indicators, targets to actually um, help them track their own progress and help those of us outside of government um, hold them accountable as well. So we need the U.S. government to actually define what does success mean when it comes to implementing women, peace, and security? How many local women's groups are they going to fund? How many militaries are they going to help to recruit women to improve their own effectiveness and by when. Um, and this will help us ensure that, they're, uh, that they are staying on task, that they are, you know, have the data they need to actually show them what programs are underperforming, where they're having successes, and to um, include all of that, the, that learning in, in their future plans. Another gap that we see is on funding. So again, these are empty mandates if there aren't enough resources uh, to actually fulfill the vision in these strategies. Um, and so that's something that agencies should be committing more of their existing budgets to making this, this happen, to making women's participation um, a more regular practice. Another gap that we see is around um, staffing. So right now, um, we see that uh, implementing this law and the strategy cannot be left to just well-meaning staff who don't have enough capacity or enough support from the top. Um, so this means ensuring that there's leadership from the top and that there's enough people doing the work that you can actually help the government change its inadequate current approach to peace and security and to make sure that, um, that our efforts actually draw on the contributions of, of half the population. And the final gap that I would point to is the need to advance women's leadership in our own operations. Uh, and this is something that the White House strategy notes. It says that to lead by example, that US efforts should actually include the participation of American female personnel. 
um, but only state and DOD in the plans they released last month actually talk about the need to improve women's representation in their workforces. There's a lot of research and findings um, by the GAO, by others that have pointed out that there are inclusion shortcomings, there are diversity shortcomings across the U.S. government. Um, and this is an area where you know, we think the U.S. should be taking to heart its own advice when it encourages other governments to increase women's participation and to actually look at how to make its own efforts more effective by increasing diversity. Yes, uh, it's always important whether you're parenting or running a government to lead by example, I think. Um, let's blow this up just a little bit further. So what would you say is the worldwide status of women's rights and how does it affect work on the ground when we're trying to make changes in the human rights context? Yeah, so we have seen progress on women's rights um, since the seminal World Conference on Women, which happened 25 years ago this year in Beijing, um, where governments and activists came together and created a platform that detailed how women's rights are human rights and set goals that we have not met in 25 years. Um, we've also seen, though, that there has been a growing backlash against women's rights. And the COVID-19 pandemic is shining a spotlight on where some of these gaps remain. We see that there's a shadow pandemic going on right now of gender-based violence in women's homes, um, an issue that we see in workplaces around the world too. We see that women are having unequal access to justice, that their economic opportunities are limited, in fact, in part by the unequal burden of unpaid work that they carry. We see women go work in the office and then come home and do a second shift by doing the vast majority of household chores and childcare. All of these are some examples of where, um, of where until women have equal rights and opportunities, the prosperity of our communities will be limited. What about the argument that some people might make that promoting women's rights might be culturally inappropriate in some contexts around the world? We do hear that. We do hear people cite traditional culture as a reason why women can't participate. Um, but in fact, that concern overlooks the fact that it, from Afghanistan to Yemen, local actors in conservative societies are the ones leading the charge themselves. They are calling for opportunities for women to lead, to sit at the peace table, to contribute to security efforts. So we can take their lead and we can uh, follow their guidance on what the most effective way is to support their participation within their cultural context. And it might be more complicated in some areas. It certainly is. It will take extra time to navigate the cultural norms, but it is not only possible to do so, it's all the more critical to ensure that women's perspectives are actually included in efforts to uh, change the future of a country. Um, and, and that's a key point here, that it's not only the right thing to do to ensure that women have an opportunity to participate, it's also more effective. It's the smart thing to do. Um, and all the more so in, in countries where women's rights are restricted. Because uh, by the U.S. making sure that women are part of the conversation 
it lays the groundwork, in fact, for a more equitable and prosperous future for a post-conflict country. Um, it lays the groundwork for women to participate more fulsomely in the future, which you know improves uh, the country's growth and 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 status on on economic, political, social measures. So again, we should be navigating in every context uh, and taking the lead from local women on what their needs and priorities are and the best way that we can help to support those. Well, and it's been a, a very positive few weeks for women in leadership roles because we've noted that five of the countries to have the lowest COVID rates are led by women, I would point out to our listeners. But you're a policy expert. Um, and this is a legal podcast, so I want to take some of that genius and, you know, encapsulate it into a legal framework, which is what kind of things you might seek legal advice about in your role. Yeah, so when it comes to women, peace, and security, I've talked a lot about the importance of women's leadership, um, but there's another element, which is focusing on women's experiences in conflict. Um, and there's a couple of legal implications, legal aspects to it. So the first is on the crimes that women experience in conflict. Um, for too long, there was not accountability. These were not even considered crimes. Rape was seen as a byproduct of, of war and, and unavoidable. But today we've seen that sexual violence and conflict um, now violates national and criminal law and international law. It constitutes a war crime a crime against community, humanity, and it can constitute an act of genocide even in the absence of death. So one priority is ensuring that given the new legal framework that's been developed over the last 20 years, that um, there is in fact accountability for the crimes that women experience in the course of war. The second priority when it comes to the legal implications and the legal aspects of women, peace and security is on accountability for women who act as perpetrators. So I've talked a lot about how women contribute to peace and security. Um, I do want to note that women can also be war makers themselves and, and can also um, uh, be actors in, in insecurity. Um, and, and it's critical that our legal efforts, our accountability efforts, recognize this and hold them accountable when they have acted as perpetrators. Let's take the example of ISIS right now. Um, women have been uh, recruited and radicalized and many traveled to the former caliphate. And right now, Countries are trying to figure out what to do with those women. The UN actually just came out with a report analyzing the challenges in judicial responses on the prosecution of ISIS-associated women. And we've, we've seen that countries don't know what to do. Some of them are leaving the women in the former caliphate and risking the security threats that they continue to pose um, as they continue to act uh, according to um, ISIS doctrine and continue to raise their children to do so. Um, some countries are bringing these uh, former female, these female affiliates home and assuming that they are innocent, assuming that all women and children are innocent and were not involved in, in 
perpetrating any crimes. Some are bringing them home and then trying to figure out how to hold them accountable. They're, in some cases, they're being more lenient compared to sentences given to men. In some cases, they're actually being harsher. Um, so all of this highlights a need to develop a more gender-sensitive criminal justice response, a criminal justice response that actually responds to men and women in the same way um, and that you know, understands that when it comes to reintegration efforts, though, that we need programs that respond to women's experiences as well. The third measure that I would highlight when we look at the legal aspects of women, peace and security, I've talked about the importance of promoting women's leadership, and that's true in the legal space as well. So part of the women, peace and security effort also looks to promote the number of, of women um, working as lawyers and judges around the world, including in conflict affected contexts. Um, and, and this is based you know, in part we know that in any workplace, it's more effective when it's diverse. Um, when it comes to the legal space, there's research that's found that female judges can help reduce barriers to women's access to legal services, um, which can also increases the likelihood that issues that affect women, um, such as domestic violence and forced marriage, are actually given legal attention. Um, so it not only kind of improves the whole judicial sphere to have more diversity, um, we also see that having more representation of women judges improves women's access to justice. Before you go, we'd love to talk about some of the work that you did on this at the UN. Uh, could you talk about working at the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs or OCHA? Sure, yes. Um, so I, I worked for OCHA both in Ethiopia and in New York. Um, and it's a great job in the UN system because your, your portfolio is to look across the whole humanitarian community and ensure that in the course of an emergency um, or in, in preparation to respond to emergencies or supporting communities' resiliency to emergencies, that you are... Um, I worked on helping to ensure that women's needs and their leadership was part of that response. Um, and again, that, that country's responses to emergencies, whether um, natural droughts or, or related to conflict, um, that these were more effective because again, they looked at the experiences of half the population and that they drew in the contributions of women's leadership. Um, while I worked for OCHA in Ethiopia, I wrote an article on how the humanitarian system was ignoring women's needs during one of the recurrent droughts. Um, and this is sadly an observation that is still true 15 years later. Um, and that's something that I know that there are many in the humanitarian system today across the UN um, and donors like the US government are trying to change and trying to look at um, and see how can we make sure that when an emergency hits that, um, that the responders are conscious that men and women have different experiences and that they're both trying to help contribute to, um, to making it through the emergency. 
Uh, and this is something, it's a gap we see today with COVID-19 in humanitarian context. Um, that again, uh, you know, the first UN humanitarian appeal on COVID did not address gender-based violence that was happening as a silent pandemic in, in, in homes around the country, around the world, as countries were in lockdown. Um, it did not address how women's healthcare needs, their maternal healthcare needs were going to be affected as we shifted all resources to the COVID response. And it didn't take into account the fact that women are nurses and primary healthcare providers on the front lines who are um, you know, need access to PPE and to information to make sure that they can best respond to the needs of their families and, and communities. Um, those are just a few of the examples of, of the gaps um, in that humanitarian response. And these were, again, some of the issues I worked on when I was in the UN system. Um, you also have a lot of expertise on peacekeeping issues. We've had a dramatic shift in focus on peacekeeping. Um, President Obama led the UN Peacekeeping Summit in 2015, whereas President Trump has been very publicly hostile towards funding UN peacekeeping missions and has cut US contributions. Can you tell us what you think about the current state of peacekeeping and how you think it affects US national security? So peacekeeping is a critical tool for global security. It is, you know, the US government, the, the Government Accountability Office found that investing in peacekeeping was actually you know, more cost effective than the US sending its own troops to um, help respond to a, a conflict crisis. Um, so there are um, lots of research pointing to the fact that peacekeeping is an effective collective response to security. Um, and right now, peacekeeping is trying to do more with less. Um, we have seen a push to decrease the budget of, of um, the Department of, of Peace Operations um, with the U.S. Uh, leading the charge on that front. Um, but, you know, the demand for peace operations around the world remains high. And so we see the U.N. system very much trying to figure out how to be more effective in its peace operations um, while also doing so on more limited budgets. And that brings us back to the topic of women. Uh, can you speak specifically about how women's participation in peacekeeping matters? Yeah, so I just noted how the UN system, how peace operations are trying to figure out how to be more effective with less. And this is, again, an area where women's leadership could contribute. Um, we see that when women participate as peacekeepers, that they actually improve mission effectiveness and advanced stability. They are able to access populations and venues that may be close to men, which increases situational awareness of potential security risks. They are able to de-escalate tension and build trust with communities. Um, and you know, all of this, again, points to women peacekeepers being able to enhance peacekeeping performance. Um, this is another area where we have seen gaps in women's leadership. Um, on the uniform side, in 2019, women were 5% um, of military peacekeepers and 11% of police personnel. Um, so there is a growing push now to increase the deployment of female peacekeepers um, to ensure that they 
um, have the opportunity to contribute and that the peacekeeping, that peace operations can, can benefit from their contributions to mission effectiveness. Right now, you are at CFR doing research on gender security, women's leadership, and economic development. So all of the things that we were just talking about through this whole podcast. Uh, are there any projects you'd like to highlight for our listeners so that they can learn more about this topic? Yeah, so we, um, we just came out with a report on understanding gender equality in foreign policy. Um, where we lay out uh, what countries around the world have been doing to um, better integrate gender equality into their foreign policy, national security, international development, and trade apparatuses. Um, and we make specific recommendations of what the U.S. government should do. So given our whole conversation today, all of the research and experience pointing to why unlocking the potential of half the population contributes to our foreign policy, national security, economic objectives. Um, given all of that, we lay out what the US government should do. What should its leadership structure be? How should it invest its resources? Um, how should it hold itself accountable? And where should it invest in, in research, for example? And it notes kind of a, a growing dialogue around the idea of feminist foreign policy. And this is something that um, Sweden uh, was the first country to announce having a feminist foreign policy a few years ago. And it was quickly followed by Canada, Mexico, France, and more countries have, have promised to develop this kind of policy as well. But all of this is, again, about um, an understanding that investing in gender equality improves our foreign policy efforts. We also have a number of interactives on our site that folks who are interested either in understanding more um, how, what the economic benefits are of women's participation, understanding what the legal barriers are to women's economic inclusion, um, or understanding the number of women at the peace table around the world from 1992 to today. We have interactives on our site that would let um, let folks uh, really explore the data and research um, that's out there on these issues. All right, you also host a few Women in Foreign uh, Policy Roundtable series. So tell us about that program. Yeah, so as a think tank, we host events to bring speakers um, and explore topics uh, and, and give foreign policy, the foreign policy community, a chance to think more about a given issue. And what we're trying to do with our Women in Foreign Policy series is to make sure, one, that issues around gender equality and foreign policy are part of that conversation, that when we're talking about the future of Afghanistan or South Sudan, when we're talking about what to do on nuclear security or on responding to um, violent extremist groups, that women's experiences and priorities are part of those conversations. We also want to make sure that uh, women's voices are, are part of those conversations directly of making sure that we have women and men speakers, um, people of color, uh, diverse perspectives um, highlighted in our national security and foreign policy conversations and dialogues. So you have given us 
quite the overview of all of all things women peace and security and we are really grateful to you we're going to link to as many <laughs> resources as we can um, including uh, to CFR's Women and Foreign Policy Program website, um, the latest uh, Women, Peace, and Security Strategy, and some other uh, resources on peacekeeping. Thank you so much. Great, thank you. It's great to join you all. All right, Jamila, thanks so much for being here with us. We really appreciate it. We'll also add a link to your bio so our listeners can look at your fascinating career in these uh, young lawyers, many of whom are going to want to go into policy, will see your track. Wonderful. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. You can keep tuning in to hear about news, legal analysis, events, and all other things national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments or feedback because we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. We are all in this together, even though we are apart. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.